Welcome to Critical Matters, a sound podcast covering a broad range of topics related to the practice of intensive care medicine. Sound provides comprehensive critical care programs to hospitals across the country. To learn more about our programs and career opportunities, visit www.soundphysicians.com. And now, your host, Dr. Sergio Zanotti. Patients who survive a cardiac arrest often sustain severe anoxic brain injury. Determining their neurological prognosis is a critical component of post-cardiac arrest care. A balanced evidence-based approach to neuroprognostication is needed to avoid premature withdrawal of support in potential survivors and to avoid the other extreme of prolonged life support in truly hopeless cases. In today's episode of the podcast, we will discuss breast practices in neuroprognostication after cardiac arrest. Our guest is Dr. Neha Tangayak, a neurocritical care physician at Mount Sinai Medical Center in New York. She's an assistant professor of neurology and neurosurgery at the Icahn School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. Dr. Tangayak serves as a director of neuroemergencies management and transfers, NEMAT, for the Mount Sinai Health System. She's also the neurocritical care fellowship director and research co-director for the Institute of Critical Care Medicine. She is also a co-director of the Mount Sinai Hospital's neurosurgical ICU. It's a true honor and a pleasure to have her on the podcast. Niha, welcome to Critical Matters. Thank you so much, Sergio, for the kind introduction. Really looking forward to our conversation today. Absolutely. And the last several months, I would say, uh, the world of post-cardiac arrest obviously has been uh, shocked by the TTM2 trial, but we're not going to talk about that precisely today. I think we're going to talk of a topic that perhaps is as important or more important because it's an opportunity, I believe, for optimization, for standardization, and for a lot of practices to really come up with evidence-based protocols to do it in a more consistent way. And that is really trying to determine the prognosis of survivors of cardiac arrest and uh, neuroprognostication, which I think is still a big challenge for a lot of intensivists, and I'm, I'm sure as well for neurointensivists. It, what I would like to do, maybe start with an introduction in terms of a historical context. In 1985, Fred Plume and his, and his team published probably a seminal paper of um, determining prognosis of patients who suffered non-traumatic anoxic brain injury. And for decades, that has dictated what we do. But then things changed with hypothermia. We learned a lot. And now things might be changing again. So maybe if you could just give us a, a, a brief overview of, of that journey as we as we begin this conversation. Certainly, and I, I think uh, what I'm hoping to do throughout our conversation is also share a framework for how to think about neuroprognostication as a whole. What does multimodal prognostication refer to and how did we even come to this point for different kinds of severe acute brain injuries and specifically for um, hypoxic ischemic uh, brain injury um, or hypoxic ischemic encephalopathy and we've come a long way since um, since that uh, historical paper from Plume that you refer to about neuroprognostication. And I almost feel that our ability to be certain about neuroprognostication has decreased with uh, the evolution of our understanding of how the primary neurological injury that hypoxic ischemic brain uh, injury occurs and uh, 
how the secondary neurological injury uh, contributes to cumulative burden of uh, injuries, including systemic injuries in these post-cardiac arrest patients. So I, I, want to, I want to lay that out there that our ability to be certain has decreased uh, with evolving literature. So it's almost as if the more we know, the less, we, um, the less certain we become. So with that in mind, uh, with the um, TTM uh, adoption, uh, all of those different studies that led to uh, TTM becoming our standard of care, there wasn't a whole lot that we could have done to improve outcomes for patients post-cardiac arrest. So when the Haka study and the Bernard study um, were released, this was a, a very hopeful moment. For the first time uh, for post-cardiac arrest survivors, there was something dramatic that we could do to improve mortality and potentially improve outcome. And then with, with uh, TTM1 uh, in 2013 and now TTM2 and several other studies uh, in between uh, these studies, again, I do want to share that uh, the studies, both Nielsen as well as our TTM2 study now, these are not studies looking at TTM versus no TTM. These are studies that look at TTM, one, one specific uh, temperature target versus another specific temperature target. The reason why it's important to keep that at the back of our minds when we think about neuroprognostication, because I think of fever as a surrogate marker for a lot of other processes that we're not able to measure uh, when we want to quantify the underlying neurological injury. So that primary injury, that HIBI or uh, hypoxic ischemic encephalopathy, that's already occurred. There are things that you can do, um, peri-arrest, intra-arrest, post-arrest, to improve neurological outcomes. And prevention of fever by instituting TTM is one of those things because we know that fever in patients with all kinds of severe acute brain injury, including post-cardiac arrest brains, is very harmful. It's leading to excitotoxic mechanisms, activation of inflammation, inflammatory cascades, um, calcium influx, glutamate excitotoxicity. So there's a lot of things that are happening to brains after severe acute brain injury. Hence, the importance to keep that at the back of our mind that you may choose whatever target you want to choose, but at least fever prevention is going to be important because that is one of those things which is in our hands uh, by being intentional, by instituting those good practices, we give our patients the ability and the opportunity to have a better neurological outcome. With respect to neuroprognostication, one thing that hasn't changed um, is multimodal neuroprognostication. All of those different things, because not a single test, not a single biomarker, not a single imaging study is going to give us 100% sensitivity or specificity. And we've got to be absolutely sure because the difference between life and death, the difference between life as we know it and that new state of normal that our post-cardiac arrest survivors will experience um, is going to be determined by what we do and how we leverage all these different things right from clinical exam, biomarkers, imaging studies, electrophysiological studies. So that component hasn't changed. So from a historical perspective, moving, moving from, from uh, 1985 right up till 2022, um, just to summarize, one thing that hasn't changed is uh, 
is multimodal prognostication. Another thing that, uh, that has changed is certainty in who is going to have a good outcome versus who's going to have a poor outcome. We know that about 80% of our post-cardiac arrest patients are going to uh, arrive in a coma, comatose state. And about two thirds of these patients will not survive their hospitalizations. And most of those patients who don't survive, don't survive because of withdrawal of life-sustaining therapies. So if that's the case, then it behooves us to be as sure as we can be. Um, and that brings me to my third point uh, is prognostic humility. Prognostic humility, being, being humble about the uncertainties that come in prognostication, this applies to all severe acute brain injuries, but specifically for post-cardiac arrest survivors, and taking all of the data we have, putting it in the context that is available to us at this moment in time, and coming up with the best possible neuroprognostication or estimate of neuroprognostication and shared decision-making so that we can uphold the goals, values, and wishes of that patient while we're guiding um, that patient's loved ones or family members in making some of these decisions. So, Sergi, I hope this was uh, this was helpful in in navigating that historical perspective and bringing it to how we um, how we look at post cardiac arrest prognostication now. Absolutely, I think it's a great. Um starting point to try to then go into the neuroprognostication approach. But before we go there, Niha, I, I do want to touch on a couple of things uh, that you that you mentioned and maybe dig a little bit more. So the first thing that really struck me as you were talking and really thinking about this also from my, my, my experience as a clinician that now has more gray hair is uh, what you were saying in terms of our diagnostic humility. And uh, the first thing that came to mind is a famous uh, Bertrand Russell quote that the whole, the whole problem with the world is that fools and fanatics are always so certain of themselves and wiser people so full of doubt, right? <laughs> and as we, as we learn more and more, I think doubt is very important in our practice because these are very serious issues. It's somebody's life. It's somebody's loved one's life. And uh, one of the, the, the problems that I think we have seen, at least by studies and probably experience in our practices, is uh, the whole concept of self-fulfilling prophecies in this population with very bad outcomes as a whole, like you said, but it very early we interpret a sign as being a dismal sign of prognosis, our care immediately starts going in the direction of not supporting those patients. And by definition, it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. And we have to be very careful because as we'll talk today, I believe that there are a lot of misconceptions. There's a lot of mistimed interpretations and not only should we be using multimodality, but I think another very important aspect of this whole enterprise is time. And time in terms of uh, serial evaluations, but also timing in relation to the event to really understand what's going on. And I'm sure that we'll touch on those a little bit more. You're absolutely right about the self-fulfilling prophecies and time. And if we're not careful, and if we're not intentional, uh, we may not only um, predispose ourselves to making the wrong decision, but it is our responsibility to guide patients, families, and other you know, subspecialists who we are working with to provide patient-centered care to, to do the right thing. And um, I'll often say, you know, I'll share this during, during our um, family meetings uh, in prognostication. I will acknowledge the uncertainty right at the outset that we don't know what the future holds,
but this is the information that we have in this particular moment in time and both understanding what has happened with respect to that primary neurological injury. So some of the tests that we do, including our imaging tests, including EEG, including biomarkers, including the clinical exam, that's to be able to quantify, okay, what's happened with that primary neurological injury or HIBI or HIE, and then what is going to happen as part of that, that uh, the, the secondary neurological injuries, whether it's cerebral edema, status epilepticus, whether it's uh, sepsis-associated encephalopathy or multifocal infarcts from hypoperfusion or that AKI, CRRT-related uh, you know, dia uh, dialysis-associated neurological injury, there's so much more that happens to these patients that for us to try to prognosticate very early in someone's course may not be the right thing to do unless and we'll talk more about what some of those markers could be that tell us okay this person's not going to have a good neurological outcome but a majority of our patients are then going to be in that that situation where we cannot be certain and we've got to support them and going back to Sergio's point about time for how long do you then support them current current guidelines say at least waiting 72 if not longer hours particularly if you have confounders on board the sedatives that you've used and the metabolism that's delayed because of hepatorenal dysfunction, et cetera. So just keeping those things at the back of our minds, not being rigid when we're using these frameworks, both with respect to our interpretation of um, the findings on different, different studies, as well as time. So yes, we want to do serial assessments. We want to understand cumulatively what is happening to our patients. As we continue to uh, to intentionally prevent this burden of secondary neurological injury, but you don't want to prognosticate too early because you may also falsely say that somebody is going to have a good outcome if you haven't waited long enough. Um, and on the other extreme, similarly say that somebody is going to have a poor outcome if you haven't waited long enough. Excellent. So let's let's go into the the approach. And what I would like to to start with is with uh, every time, and I had a, I was working clinically yesterday and I had a, a cardiac arrest patient transferred to our hospital. And every time somebody calls me about a cardiac arrest, where it's the ED or a transferring hospital, there are always elements of the history that they emphasize as prognostic factors, like, oh, this is really bad or this is really, really good. And I wanted to ask you, are there elements in the clinical history that are truly helpful? That's a great question. And yes, there, there could be. And again, we won't take that in, in isolation as compared to everything else that's happening to our patients. But it's important to know who is this patient who had a cardiac arrest? Who's the person behind the patient? Of course, age is a marker, but it is not the only uh, marker of um, how somebody is going to do after any kind of uh, brain injury. But knowing, yes, okay, so what's somebody's age? What is their pre-morbid functional status? Uh, what is their comorbidity burden? Uh, are they dependent on any organ replacement therapies, uh, dialysis or not? So just knowing who the person is uh, before they had their cardiac arrest. The second component is, um, you know, the characteristics of the arrest itself. Were they found down? Do we know uh, when they were last seen normal? Um, of course, that initial rhythm, how long did it take? What was their ROSC, ROSC time? And did they have multiple arrests in the field or not? Um, or in the ED that's uh, calling you for a transfer? All of those things are important, but again, 
whether somebody had a BFib arrest or whether somebody had a PEA or they were found in asystole, you know, knowing those pieces are important because they may give us some clues about what is going to happen next. However, in isolation, it's very hard to just say, okay, somebody is older and they, they're a nursing home resident and they were found down. Now what is going to happen? Um, when I listen to that, yes, at the back of my mind, I'm thinking the probability of a poor outcome is higher. Then comes this third component of, uh, do you already have um, access to information or collateral information from their surrogates? Do they have a priori stated um, advanced directives or not? And would they want heroic measures or not? And what is a meaningful quality of life for them? So typically when we'll get called for prognostication, it's usually after ROSC. So yes, I will ask for all of those historical pieces uh, so I can begin to build the story while we are waiting for other pieces of objective data. Now, let me ask you a question in terms of, uh, is there any data to support this or am I wrong? But my clinical observation has been uh, two things I find consistently. One is that the downtime uh, is often uh, inaccurate. And since we don't know the quality of CPR that somebody truly got, it might not really be uh, that determinant in terms that you could have somebody who had a short downtime, but with very poor CPR, or you could have somebody who arrested in the OR with an A-line and excellent CPR for a prolonged period of time, right? And uh, at the end, I mean, there may be very different divergent outcomes. And the second one that I wanted to ask you, Niha, was it, it does seem that when the mechanism of cardiac arrest is from asphyxia or a, a, or anoxic respiratory failure, the outcome obviously usually is going to be on average worse because by the time the heart stops, they already are severely hypoxic. Is there any data to support that? So first, I'll, I'll um, you know talk about the variabilities in care that you highlighted. So CPR quality. So it's not just about the time in in that situation because there is so much care variability. Whether it's CPR quality, whether it's TTM quality, whether it's the kind of monitoring, the kind of uh, uh, multimodal organ support that is being provided to these patients. There is so much, so much. Um, variability in how we deliver care depending upon different care settings and these variabilities are often not measurable because nobody is paying attention to uh, observing how how different uh, these things may be um, we're lucky that sometimes we we may get automated feedback regarding cpr in the middle of uh, arrest depending upon the uh, uh, the defibrillator devices we use but in other situations, we don't know. So that's another reason why we've got to we've got to have this diagnostic and prognostic humility because we are going to be as good as the information that we receive. So if we can't be certain of the quality of the information that we're receiving, we've got to have a healthy doubt there, but not dismiss it completely. But just make sure that we we don't say, oh, this person this person had uh, ROS time 50 minutes, and that's why they're going to have poor outcomes. So I think that's that's an important lesson from everything you described, Sergio. And the the second piece, yes, those those patients who come in with uh, shockable rhythms do tend to have better outcomes. Those patients who have uh, hypoxic or ischemic, um, uh, hypoxic anoxic um, uh, reasons for their for their arrest. Um, it also makes you wonder how quickly somebody is able to uh, secure their airway for how long they were down, for how long they, they had they had uh, 
uh, exposure of their brains to this hypoxic state before they had a cardiac arrest. So while there isn't uh, a lot of definitive data to suggest you know, one way or the other, just given that there are all these other factors that do um, need to be taken account when we're prognosticating, but when we look at hyperion, for example, and we look at how those patients behaved with uh, TTM down to 33, and you're seeing, okay, there's improvement in outcome. Um, or as compared to TTM2, where not a lot of those patients had um, uh, were intra-hospital arrest. They were all out, outside hospital cardiac arrest patients, and hyperion had intra-hospital cardiac arrest. And a lot of our intra-hospital cardiac arrest patients do tend to have non-shockable rhythms or may have... Uh, um, hypoxic uh, or anoxic reasons for uh, for their cardiac arrest. So um, keeping that in mind, I think just interpreting the data with with caution. While historically we know that shockable rhythm uh, patients who are in shockable rhythms tend to have better neurological outcomes, it doesn't mean that patients who have uh, rhythms that are not not shockable or patients who have hypoxic anoxic injury are not going to have a, a good outcome. Uh, Sergio, I'm not being very very definitive here, but that's the state of state of our data. And I think it's important for our our, our listeners and clinicians to understand that uh, there are situations in medicine which I think are very common where we can't be definitive, and that that humility you talked about, which is really I think a a primary primordial uh, quality of of science, scientific inquiry, is very very important. So we talked about uh, timing, and just to summarize, obviously, uh, making sure that we're timing it appropriately, and we'll talk more as we talk about the different tests is very important, but also a, a common number that is thrown out there is 72 hours, right? And uh, mm -hmm. 72 hours from, from ROSC is an important uh, time frame because especially when people first show up to your ICU or first show up uh, to, the, to, to the hospital, it's very difficult to make, I mean, very broad uh, uh, statements because there's a lot of unknowns. But you also mentioned confounding factors, and I would like to maybe dive a little bit deeper into that, Niha, if you could tell us more about confounding factors. Absolutely. So confounding factors include, say somebody was already cold because of environmental factors at the time they had their cardiac arrest. Um, so making sure that we don't interpret the lack of brainstem reflexes if somebody's body temperature because of because of environmental factors was already say 29 30 degrees and you don't see any brainstem reflexes then you interpret that as oh this person's going to have a poor outcome so that's one one uh, piece of information other confounding factors things that we do to our patients whether it's sedatives whether it's paralytics whether it's uh, understanding uh, for how long some of these medications are going to linger uh, and the metabolites from these medications, particularly medications like benzodiazepines, Versed, um, or midazolam, for how long are the metabolites going to linger in somebody who has hepatorenal dysfunction? And some of these patients will have myoclonic seizures or myoclonic status epilepticus or status epilepticus, uh, non-convulsive status epilepticus, and you end up putting them on high-dose Versed or midazolam drips, uh, it's going to take time for those medications to wash out from somebody's system. So we, we want to be careful in 
preventing over-interpretation of, um, of depressed brainstem reflexes in the context of sedative medications. Want to make sure that you have given enough time for rocuronium to, to exit somebody's system, particularly if they have end-stage renal disease or AKI, and now you're on CRRT. So you're not seeing any uh, any uh, movements or any response to pain, that doesn't mean that that patient, a, patient truly is paralyzed uh, um, because of their underlying brain injury, but could very well be, be under the effect of rocuronium. So I think medications having, having uh, a good understanding of metabolism, uh, working closely with your pharmacists, I think ICU pharmacists are an invaluable uh, resource to us as we manage some very complex patients in our ICUs. So making sure we understand the, the pharmacokinetics changes in the pharmacodynamic dynamics for some of these medications before we interpret what we're seeing on our clinical exam or even the EEG for that matter. The EEG can be, the findings can be confounded by what you have uh, your patients on. Propofol can induce birth suppression in patients. Midazolam uh, will induce birth suppression uh, depending upon the doses you're using. So being careful in saying, oh, the EEG is showing a malignant pattern because now this patient is in birth suppression. But guess what? The patient is in birth suppression because of the doses of propofol that this patient is on because now they have severe ARDS and you're on uh, high doses of propofol. So I think that that is another component. The third um, kind of confounder would be uh, the different kinds of organ failures that these patients are going to suffer from, particularly hepatorenal. And uh, when we talk about this, this broad, broad term encephalopathy, hepatic encephalopathy, uremic encephalopathy. So is there any other sepsis-associated encephalopathy? Is there any other uh, organ dysfunction that is contributing to uh, worsening encephalopathy? We've all had those patients, right, who, who come in with a UTI and then they slip into a coma as you're managing their septic shock. So why, why is that patient who comes in with a normal brain in a coma. They're in a coma because of sepsis-associated encephalopathy. Uh, so making sure that we not only look at that primary reason that the patient came to our ICUs with, but understanding that milieu that that primary injury has now created and all the different systemic injuries, all the different iatrogenic concerns um, that need to be taken into account before interpreting what is happening by way of the clinical exam or on electrophysiological tests. Excellent. Before we go into the describing the prognostic test, what I wanted to ask you about is brain death, because my interpretation has always been that it's not as common, but brain death is brain death no matter when it when it shows up, if it's diagnosed appropriately. Could you comment on that, Niha? Absolutely. And uh, Sergio, I agree with you that uh, a lot of states in the in the United States and several countries in the world uh, do agree with with uh, the statement that brain death is the equivalent of death and uh, being absolutely sure that a patient has become brain dead before we declare them because that truly truly is the difference between life and death. So every state, uh, state's Department of Health has guidance in uh, in speak for United States has guidance on how to, uh, what are the criteria before you declare somebody brain dead? And making sure that you're aware of your Department of Health policy for the state that you practice in or states that you practice in, as well as the local hospital health system policies 
and making sure that your local uh, hospital health system policies are in line with your state's Department of Health policies on how to, uh, how to suspect and diagnose that somebody has brain death. In terms of the clinical exam, all those things, and this is, this is actually a nice uh, riff from the confounding factors that we were talking about. So most, most departments uh, of health uh, in the United States will you know, suggest that you uh, or will enlist, you know, what are some of those confounders that you have to be very careful about before you proceed with even that clinical examination and saying that all the, the absence of different brainstem reflexes that you find on your clinical exam is not because of any confounders. And other confounders uh, that we have to be careful about, you know, whether somebody has profound electrolyte abnormalities, um, um, whether it's hypoglycemia, hyperglycemia, uh, acidosis, different kinds of electrolyte abnormalities. And some of these confounders can, can, uh, can depress different kinds of brainstem reflexes. So we have to be sure that the exam that we are seeing is not because of those kinds of confounders. And the number one thing is you have to have structural proof of severe acute brain injury because uh, if you don't have proof of that then you have to be very careful before you proceed with uh, doing your clinical examination so if somebody has a massive intracerebral hemorrhage with herniation or somebody with massive global cerebral edema after uh, after uh, uh, a cardiac arrest so you have that structural proof that somebody has sustained severe acute brain injury then the next step is has this person progressed to brain death or not so making sure that none of those confounders exist in new york state for example the the body temperature that somebody needs to be at before we proceed with clinical examination is 36 or higher 36 degrees celsius or higher so after that you you proceed with um, uh, checking for diff the presence or absence of different brainstem reflexes and then performing a co confirmatory test and in this uh, for new york state the confirmatory test is apnea testing uh, and for whatever reason if you can't perform an apnea test for example somebody who has severe ARDS or somebody who's in profound shock and you're on multiple pressors etc so you can't proceed with performing an apnea test then you can perform uh, some ancillary tests to confirm the diagnosis of brain death excellent and 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 also wanted to what I was I obviously like you said there's a lot of criteria related to determining death by neurologic criteria. There's also, like you said, um, local state health uh, re requirements, which are obviously everybody should be aware of. And uh, we'll link uh, the show notes to a podcast we had with uh, Dr. David Greer talking about that as well. But within the context of uh, cardiac arrest, my, my question really is, Niha, uh, we talked about 72 hours, but if you meet all the criteria you mentioned before that window, it means the patient is brain dead. Is that is that a correct uh, interpretation? What I would recommend in that situation uh, is repeating uh, neuro uh, imaging, because if somebody truly has lost all of their reflexes, you know, uh, making sure that you have repeat imaging to confirm that evolution. If they didn't get a day zero CT head, uh, and some some places may not have the ability to do that kind of day zero CT head, but my recommendation would be always get that day zero CT head because sometimes you will pick up the underlying cause of the arrest on that day zero CT head. 
example would be uh, a, you know a severe uh, subarachnoid hemorrhage uh, aneurysmal subarachnoid hemorrhage or uh, you may see that uh, somebody had a cardiac arrest and was found down and now they also have a massive subdural hematoma so you can both uh, be able to identify a potential cause for the cardiac arrest as well as some uh, unintended um, or uh, you know difficult to otherwise pick up consequence of uh, the cardiac arrest uh, for example from this fall post cardiac arrest when somebody's found down and the the third thing is having um, if you see global cerebral edema on that day zero CT head, then the likelihood that somebody is going to have a good outcome is low. However, we often don't have a, a comparison CT head pre, uh, you know, in, from their pre-morbid state. Or if we end up seeing, you know, some of these patients come to the same same hospitals or health systems, and you may have access to their prior records and compare that day zero CT head before you interpret the appearance of loss of gray white junction or um, sulcal effacement as global cerebral edema. So in that kind of patient, if within 72 hours you're seeing and uh, barring all of those other confounders that we spoke about, if you see that they're, they're showing a loss of all their brainstem reflexes, then my recommendation would be proceed with a repeat CT head to look at the evolution and sometimes you will see this this clear evolution where patients have developed profound global cerebral edema and this kind of pattern of uh, pseudo subarachnoid hemorrhage or you begin to see um, no absolutely no gray white differentiation so if you, if that is happening then I think um, you could then proceed with uh, brain death declaration before 72 hours but that situation is so so rare and i'm usually quite cautious uh in proceeding down that pathway perfect so let's let's uh, dive into the prognostic test that uh, constitute multimodal neuroprognostication then maybe we could after we go over those we could talk about some common pitfalls and then close by putting it all together and presenting a framework of what you do on, in your regular practice in, in Mount Sinai. So why don't we start with uh, the physical exam? So the physical exam um, for all, for all brain injuries, the physical exam is super, super important. And in these patients, before instituting TTM, getting your first physical exam before the institution of TTM, I think that'll be, um, that is uh, quite important. If you see absolutely no presence of brainstem reflexes, including absence of pupillary reflex, corneal reflex, no motor response, um, you can add that point to that story that you're building for prognostication, and it's suggestive of there is a potential for poor prognosis. So get that get that exam before TTM, but that exam itself cannot guide what is going to happen next to the patient. So it's just one more data point that you can add to that story, but don't put too much weight on what you're seeing. If there is absence of different reflexes, it doesn't mean that this person is absolutely committed to a pro poor prognosis, but maybe there is a higher possibility of having poor prognosis. Then doing an exam serially while you're instituting TTM, looking for uh, whether somebody's developing uh, myoclonic jerks or not. And particularly, the moment when TTM is being instituted, irrespective of the temperature target, um, 
that period when somebody is being actively cooled and actively being rewarmed those are vulnerable periods so seeing what is happening both clinically as well as on uh, EEG so my suggestion always is you know when you're instituting TTM get these patients connected to EEG myoclonic jerks whether they are subcortical myoclonic jerks so these are the, these are not seizures they are subcortical myoclonic jerks or cortical myoclonic jerks which are seizures you are going to need to look at what happens to the EEG when somebody has myoclonic jerks so that's another good reason to have somebody connected to EEG because a lot of patients will develop myoclonic jerks uh, in the first 24 to 48 hours post cardiac arrest um, with respect to um, the you know how we test different uh, reflexes so pupil pupillary reflex uh, doing the conventional sort of naked eye exam of the pupils versus there are there are some studies now that also look at pupillometry or uh, near infrared pupillometry uh, exams to quantify the pupillary reactivity uh, so if you have pupillometers available i would recommend you know use pupillometers you can do them q1 hours while somebody uh, somebody is undergoing TTM uh, but if you don't uh, even that naked eye pupillary exam is good enough although there is interrater variability so when you say somebody's pupils are not reactive be absolutely sure that they are not reactive um, so those are those are some things on the clinical exam that should be documented some things on the clinical exam that will give you an idea in building that story for good prognosis would be uh, the presence or the re-emergence of certain brainstem reflexes whether it's the pupils whether it's corneals whether it's cough gag uh, say these reflexes were absent and they come back or that they're present right from day zero onwards uh, on the motor exam if you're beginning to see some uh, motor response um, particularly withdrawal to pain localization to pain those are also signs of um, good prognosis and um, I hope just keeping those kinds of things in mind but again checking what drips is my patient on and how much can I interpret what I'm seeing do I have the opportunity or the ability to do an exam of sedation or not because sometimes it may just not be safe so uh, we should just be careful in uh, in the interpretation of these different physical exam findings Sergio, should I talk about other tests or any questions about the physical exam? Yes. So let me ask you about the, the physical exam. Uh, just one more thing. In terms of the, the pupillary reflex, the corneal reflex, uh, and the motor response are kind of like very commonly, obviously, quoted because they were very important in the original PLUM studies. Are there any timeframes that you want to uh, highlight as being of significance? There's actually an excellent review paper, and there are two review papers that uh, Sandroni and uh, Sandroni et al. have written. One on how to um, how to perform, how to predict good prognosis, and how to predict poor prognosis. Uh, the poor prognosis paper uh, is from 2020, and uh, the good prognosis paper is from 2022. Both of them were published in Intensive Care Medicine. The authors have done an excellent job of using the uh, they, they not only looked at the PICO framework, but they also specifically look at time and repeated measures 
for different uh, things on the physical exam than the other tests, including biomarkers, imaging, EEG. So what do you find in the first 24 hours, 72 hours, so on and so forth. So they've done a very good job of summarizing the true positive, false positive, um, as well as um, sensitivity, specificity for all of these different signs. So I think the repeated measures, there is definitely data on, on all these different tests and uh, different studies have in, uh, you know, studied it uh, uh, slightly differently, but uh, Sandroni et al. have done a good job of summarizing all of that. I think one of their papers actually has like 50 tables. They included everything uh, with respect to all these different time points. So for example, for pupils, um, if the pupillary response is absent uh, at day zero or within 24 hours then it's also absent at 72 hours then it is you know um, it's more specific for a poor prognosis but the problem is it's not a very sensitive sign so i think we just have to be careful uh, the, the the message i would like to share is repeated assessments are needed for each of those different things on the physical exam there are studies that have looked at each of those different signs and reflexes that we spoke about as well as the motor exam and uh, testing testing for these at different time points uh, with TTM without TTM most of the studies that were included in uh, in the Sandroni papers um, were with TTM so I think it's totally worthwhile if you have a question about a particular reflex or you know um, the interpretation of uh, or the sensitivity specificity of each of these different things on the exam uh, these would be two good papers to keep handy and we'll reference them in the, in the show notes thanks Niha so let's talk about biochemical tests real quickly these are unfortunately I think are not as available in terms of timely fashion in many places that I've seen people practice but I'm sure that there's some data and I just want to uh, hear how, how you utilize them if you do. Uh, Sergio, you are absolutely right. Getting access to NSE, neuron-specific interlays, in a timely fashion and the results coming back in time. Um, for, for Mount Sinai, for example, when we send off NSE, we don't get our first result back uh, within the first three days. Like it takes time for neuron-specific interlays to come back. Um, and there are lots of papers that have looked at uh, neuron-specific interlays and, you know, different kinds of cutoffs. I, I always am cautious about using any one particular cutoff. I look at the trends. Uh, that's why I'll ask um, uh, our teams to send three, uh, uh, three uh, samples on day one, day two, and day three. And then, of course, it will take some time for this, this to result. Uh, S-beta 100 is another one of those biomarkers. Uh, we don't have access to it um, at our center. Uh, again, access to these, these biomarkers and um, using them in uh, as another data point as part of multimodal prognosis. I think it's it's useful when you look at the, the sensitivity, specificity of these uh, biomarkers put into the right context with multimodal prognos uh, prognosis. MicroRNA measurements have also been studied. There's a bunch of different biomarkers that have been studied. Neuron-specific interlace just happens to be the, the biomarker that we have the most data on, but uh, caution is advised. Don't look at a single cutoff and say poor prognosis. 
the trend in these values is important and uh, putting it in the context of multimodal prognostication is important because although the 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 name of the biomarker is neuron specific enolase it's a very non specific marker of neurological injury perfect so i guess that the summary there really is uh, that if you have it available use use it with caution but it definitely is another piece to that multimodal uh, uh, puzzle and uh, if done serially can provide information that has been validated as being associated with certain prognosis so i think that's fair and and, and like you said uh, i don't think that it's widely available but there are obviously a lot of hospitals who have access to it even if it takes a day or two to come back excellent so the next uh, i guess group of uh of prognostic tests uh, include, uh, and I don't know if this is the right term, but electrical tests. And I would like to start with EEG, and then maybe you can talk about um, sensory um, uh, provoked, uh, evoked potentials, SECP. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So electrophysiology, uh, I'm a huge fan of electrophysiological tests, particularly EEG. And I am not a critical care EEG specialist, but I do believe that if we had the ability to use EEG, um, and connect people to EEG monitoring just like we connect them to EKG, just that access, the ease of connection and experts to be able to interpret those tests. We would be using EEG so much more widely. The utility of uh, continuous EEG monitoring is tremendous in patients with different kinds of acute brain injuries, particularly in uh, patients post cardiac arrest. So there are several studies that have described different patterns of, uh, uh, on EEG that can both uh, tell us whether somebody is going to have a, a poor prognosis versus somebody who's going to have a good prognosis. So there are some patterns that are recognized as malignant patterns. And what are, what are some of those patterns? So uh, spontaneous birth suppression. Spontaneous birth suppression means that it is not because you have them on, on uh, propofol or midazolam or any other sedatives that can uh, potentially cause birth suppression, but the brain, the underlying brain is injured so severely that it's gone into spontaneous birth suppression or uh, having uh, different kinds of ictal interictal patterns with uh, non-convulsive status um, uh, that meet criteria for non-convulsive status epilepticus. So some of these periodic patterns can, uh, when, they, when they are 2.5 hertz or higher, uh, then they meet the criteria for non-convulsive status epilepticus. Again, caution is advised that all patients who develop myoclonic status epilepticus are not uh, deemed to have a poor uh, prognosis. There are studies that show us that if we are aggressive in treating the myoclonic status epilepticus, patients may have a good outcome. So before you interpret the EEG as having a malignant pattern, a, a fully suppressed background without any reactivity in the background, uh, without being on any other, you know, confounding medications, etc. Um, those would be regarded as patterns suggestive of a poor outcome. Uh, and then what can tell us that somebody is going to have a good outcome? Um, reactivity on EEG. Uh, it essentially shows you know, some changes when you stimulate a patient either by way of voice or by touch, and you're seeing some changes in EEG. So that's reactivity, which, uh, which is suggestive of a good outcome. Or you begin to see um, you know, the background rhythm emerging, um, or somebody has sleep-wake cycles. So those are things that are suggestive of good outcomes. So EEG 
is a very powerful um, non-invasive neurophysiological modality that can help both diagnose as well as uh, prognosticate post-cardiac arrest. But the problem with EEG, of course, it is affected by so many things, including the medications that we have patients on. So we have to be careful when we interpret EEG, as opposed to SSEP. So with SSEP, somatosensory evoked potentials, I'll just share, it is hard. It is hard for us to get SSEPs at our centers. Um, at, at, at Mount Sinai Hospital, for example, it's difficult for us to get SSEPs outside of intraoperative monitoring. Uh, they're using using it as part of intraoperative monitoring all the time, but getting it in the ICU is a little bit operationally harder for us. So we don't end up using as much SSCP as um, some other centers do. SSCPs should be performed after rewarming because they can be affected by um, by lower temperatures. However, as compared to EEG. SSCP uh, tends to not get as affected by sedative medications. Both of these tests, the electrophysiological tests, can suffer from uh, interference with different devices, different even infusion pumps, etc., ventilators that we use in the ICU. So just you know, uh, working closely with your with your electrophysiology teams um, to uh, to remove some of those. Uh, you know, there are ways of removing some of those um, uh, interfering signals before the interpre interpretation of the studies. So they're both, they're both very helpful. SSCPs tend to be um, uh, fairly specific and accurate uh, if you have absence of the N20 response, um, which is that high up cortical response uh, of um, the somatosensory pathway. And for EEG, again, there's, there's a lot of these different patterns have good sensitivity they are not as specific, but good sensitivity. Additional question with the EEG, Niha, is uh, it is something that that uh, I've always found uh, confuses people. Um, the presence of generalized status myoclonus has a very different significance than the patient has myoclonic jerks. Could you uh, maybe clarify that for us? So, um, you know, when we read studies, I think I would say before 2013 that describe uh, myoclonic um, status epilepticus and patients having a poor outcome. Um, I think we we've touched upon this theme in in a lot of our um, in a lot of our conversation. The variability. So all myoclonus is not created the same. When people were describing myoclonic status epilepticus or myoclonic jerks in literature, everybody wasn't speaking the same language. Now that EEG utilization has become a little more prevalent, it's obviously not as widely available as, as uh, we would like it to be, but the fact that it is available more widely, looking for whether the myoclonic jerks that you're seeing are uh, cortical myoclonus or subcortical myoclonic jerks. Subcortical myoclonic jerks, one, one kind of subcortical myoclonic jerk will be Lance Adams myoclonus. That has a good, pro th those patients are going to have a good prognosis uh, that is suppressible by some of our anti-seizure medications as well. Although this is not necessarily a seizure, it's subcortical myoclonus, but you can still suppress it with some anti-seizure medications. And if there is any doubt, is this cortical or is this subcortical myoclonus? So one, one possible uh, way to distinguish between the two uh, at the bedside, if you have somebody connected to EEG monitoring, you give them a benzo trial. 
by a benzo trial, I mean a low-dose um, uh, benzodiazepine. So you could use, for example, one or two milligrams of uh, midazolam and see what happens to their uh, EEG as well as to their myoclonus. You may not be able to uh, see a, one possibility is nothing happens. There's no change. Another possibility is that you're temporarily able to suppress the myoclonic jerks and you don't see any artifact on the EEG when, when a patient begins to have uh, myoclonic jerks again. Or you begin to see time-locked uh, changes in the EEG along with that myoclonic jerk, which tells you that this is cortical myoclonus. So myoclonic seizures, subcortical myoclonus, both of these can be controlled with the same medications. You can use, for example, valproic acid if your patient does not have shock liver or any acute liver injury post-cardiac arrest. Valproic acid is a good medication. Uh, Levetiracetam can help in these patients. Uh, if you're able to very easily control um, whether it's subcortical or cortical myoclonus with anti-seizure medications, then another you know hint towards maybe this is going to going to be a patient who's going to have a good outcome. As opposed to patients with myoclonic status epilepticus, um, again, uh, my read of the lit literature is to be aggressive in treating it if there are other, um, if there are other data points that are telling you that there is a possibility for a good neurological outcome. So if we don't treat myoclonic status epilepticus, just like we treat other uh, ways, uh, other you know, forms of convulsive status epilepticus ag aggressively, then uh, it becomes part of a self-fulfilling prophecy. Um, so I hope, Sergio, that that clarifies um, uh, myoclonic seizures, subcortical myoclonus and myoclonic status epilepticus. Absolutely. And I think it also highlights the importance of really applying EEG to these patients. And like you said, I think the the utilization of EEG is growing throughout the country, but obviously I'm sure it's much higher in a dedicated neuro ICU than in a general ICU. But mm -hmm. as clinicians, I think that we should just be thinking at a very very practical level that we have a brain injured patient we're monitoring their heart rate continuously. We're monitoring sometimes their blood pressure continuously. We're monitoring their lungs continuously. Why shouldn't we have something to monitor their brain continuously? Whatever is available, we should be pushing for that. Very well said, yep. So the last component of these prognostic tests is imaging, brain imaging, which I think really means for most people, CT scans or MRIs. Could you, and you already mentioned earlier in the conversation, the value of getting a, a CT scan up front to understand possible causes. But could you give us a little bit more uh, detail on how you utilize and what the evidence supports for the, the use of brain imaging and neuroprognostication itself? Sure thing. So the day zero uh, CT head, you know, we discussed earlier, it may give you an idea of what the underlying etiology for the cardiac arrest is. If you're seeing global cerebral edema or loss of gray white, uh, differentiation. There's something called as gray-white ratios, uh, which can be calculated if you begin to see that on your first CT head, the CT head that is done within the first 24 hours, then uh, it's an important data point um, to, to capture. Also, to be able to compare the evolution of injury from day zero to, say, 72 or more hours when you're going to begin to, uh, you know, really put together that puzzle of neuroprognostication. So if you don't have a particularly younger brains, the brains are going to look so full where we're used to seeing CT scans in our uh, 
elderly patients where there is some physiological you know atrophy that you're already seeing so identifying gravide loss of gravide differentiation on those cts is a little bit easier as compared to uh, identifying loss of gravide differentiation on younger people's uh, ct heads because their brains are really full so there isn't really um, a whole lot that uh, a whole lot of swelling um, or uh, hypoxic ischemic uh, injury that is uh, going to cause loss of gray-white differentiation. So you have to be careful when you're interpreting CT heads in younger patients as compared to elderly patients. So that's why I always try to get, um, Sergio, going back to your point of repeated measures, that's why I'll always advocate for getting uh, um, a CT head uh, um, within the first 24 hours of cardiac arrest, as well as um, then we can talk about whether repeating a CT head at 72 hours or greater versus doing an MRI. So uh, with respect to uh, getting an MRI in these patients, of course, what else is going on with these patients? If somebody's on mechanical circulatory support or say you had to uh, put this patient on, on ECMO, you're obviously not going to be able to get an MRI on, the, on those patients. Um, so then repeating a CT head in those patients would be reasonable. And if you had a... Uh, and this becomes especially uh, helpful if you already had another uh, CT head to compare the two with, unless there are dramatic uh, findings. When we look at this, this gray-white ratio, it's measured at three, three levels, uh, and uh, there are certain areas in the brain that are more vulnerable to, um, to hypoxic ischemic injury, and um, whether it's the, the cortex itself, basal ganglia, um, the, it, within the cerebellum, there are specific areas that are vulnerable, uh, hippocampi, etc. So you'll be able to identify some of that on the CT head. Now on MRI, uh, on MRI there are obviously different sequences, and I often, you know, when I'm talking to patients and families, I'll, I'll, I'll often say that on MRI we look at different sequences. You can think of these sequences as filters on Instagram, right? Or these different filters which give us a better a resolution of specific things on uh, um, on on the picture that we're we're trying to obtain. So when we look at these MRI sequences, there are two MRI sequences: the DWI, the diffusion weighted um, imaging, and the ADC, the apparent diffusion coefficient. So the ADC imaging, there are studies that have looked at quantifying the the ADC burden of injury and correlating that with outcome. One um, uh, word of caution when you look at imaging studies in patients who have anoxic brain injury or predominantly there was a there was a hypoxic or anoxic cause of arrest, the initial imaging may be completely normal. And unless you did repeated imaging, you may not be able to see any evolution of injury. So one good rule would be if you don't see any uh, diffusion weighted um, on DWI or ADC, you don't see any injury there. Um, on your first imaging, uh, and then you do a subsequent image, you know, uh, uh, by by day five or day seven, um, then you could say, okay, then there is a possibility of a of a good outcome. But if you begin to see evolution of injury, um, then you know that there is, there is at least some areas of the brain that are in, uh, involved. And quantifying that injury, whether it's mild, moderate, severe, it depends upon how many areas are involved, but again, imaging should not be utilized in isolation of everything else. It is also just one more uh, data point for that multimodal prognostication. 
there are very few things on imaging for example this this massive global cerebral edema or complete loss of gray white junction or you know an mri you're just seeing a very high burden there's diffuse cortical ribboning and basal ganglia diffusion restriction and cerebellar uh, you know diffusion restriction so on and so forth that tell us okay this person has severe uh, hibi or severe hie excellent and it's also interesting that from a just a social perspective imaging is usually a big deal for families because i think it's something objective that people can understand and look at and they're always asking are you going to repeat the CAT scan? Are you going to get an MRI? Because somehow they feel that that's going to give a definitive answer. And I think it's important also for us to, from the get-go, explain how this process really evolves and that there's not one definitive test and that it's the combination of those with time and what we see in terms of evolution that ultimately will give us the best available information. You're absolutely right. And in that conversation, uh, letting them know that Time is also, as part of multimodal prognostication, I almost feel like time should be thought of as one more, uh, one more marker of prognosis because these repeated measures are as important uh, as any of these individual tests. I almost feel very lucky sometimes as a neurointensivist when I talk to patients and families, and particularly when I'm having these family meetings, because a picture speaks a thousand words, right? So just having that scan and showing the scan to patients and families or uh, most of the times these patients cannot participate in, in decision making, we're showing it, just being able to really give them an opportunity to wrap their heads around what has happened, it is very helpful. So I, I, I do hear you, you know, I know where, where our uh, patients and families are, are coming from and they're asking for what, can I see what this injury looks like? Absolutely. Are there any common pitfalls that we should avoid? One is uh, avoid self-fulfilling prophecies. Keep yourself in check, having that diagnostic and prognostic humility, um, being very intentional about staying up to date with what is the current guidance in our field. And it's very hard, it's very, very hard as intensivists to keep up with all of the different literature, particularly subspecialty literature. So my usual approach to that is um, at least looking at the guidelines from major medical societies. And if you wanted to do a deep dive into one or two recommendations or something that, that you are experiencing at the bedside with a patient, then just go back to the source literature for that recommendation from that guideline statement. Another uh, key thing to keep in mind, our guidelines are going to, going to um, stay behind the most current literature. So if there is a particular clinical question, and if, if you see a lot of, a lot of uh, patients post cardiac arrest in your practice, then periodically, um, you know, setting, setting certain alerts for uh, whether it's via Google Scholar or PubMed, just setting an alert to get those, you know, most recent studies, or randomized controlled clinical trials directly to your inbox so you are aware and you can then decide for yourself whether you're going to change your clinical practice or not. So I think that lifelong learning is an important piece to add to everything that we have discussed so far. It's true about, I feel like it's true about all of life, but uh, specifically as intensivists, we have to be very careful. We cannot be dogmatic and making sure we have the responsibility to guide so many people uh, in making um, decisions about, um, about 
what the next course of action or what that journey towards recovery or towards withdrawal of life-sustaining therapies is going to look like. So it's I, I, I think it's it's a very important position of responsibility. So making sure that we understand. And then misinterpretation of studies. Um, I think, um, you know, TTM2, um, in my mind, is a good example of how when 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 somebody is already skeptical about TTM, when they look at TTM2, they'd be their interpretation may be, oh, TTM2 is a is a trial of, uh, you know, now we don't need to do anything for for these patients with respect to their temperature control. But that is not what that study is telling us. What that study is telling us is a specific temperature maybe may not matter as much for a specific type of patient population. But how do we customize? the results of uh, specific trials because trial populations uh, are, are not going to, everything that we see in clinical trials is not going to translate to that patient in front of us. But how do we customize our practice for that patient in front of us? And there is some, there's some good uh, uh, suggestion on um, how we can potentially choose different targets, choose different CO2 goals or blood pressure goals for uh, patients post cardiac arrest depending upon our estimate of how severe their underlying neurological injury may be. So I think customizing our approach, so lifelong learning, making sure we're aware of uh, source literature and guidelines in, in uh, taking care of these patients and then customizing and applying that at, at the bedside. Um, being aware of all the different confounders that can, um, uh, that can affect clinical exam, biomarkers, um, uh, electrophysiological tests. Um, as, as long as we're aware and we take steps to not over interpret the presence or absence of certain things um, and putting that in the context of the big picture, uh, that shared decision making. So different models of care are practiced in different parts of the parts of the world. Just being aware of what kind of model are you uh, a part of? Um, is it a more paternalistic care model? Is it a is it a more shared decision making model? So trying to elicit what would be in line with somebody's goals, values, and wishes, and would they be okay with that uncertainty that you're sharing with the family? Because neurological recovery can take weeks to months to even years. In cardiac arrest patients, recovery has been described at six months and even up to a year. So then is it is it would this person um, behind the patient uh, for whom you're helping guide make some of these decision decisions be okay going to a long-term facility with a trach and peg and waiting to see what happens so shared decision making and upholding those principles and trying to elicit what is going to be in line with somebody's goals values and wishes excellent and i think that ultimately uh, if we had to summarize three uh, very important uh, take-home messages that I heard over and over again, Niha, are number one is humility. And I always believe that excellence in clinical practice is more about having the right questions than having answers. So be very humble in terms of what we're trying to determine. Number two is the multimodal approach, right? There's not one test that gives you all the answers. And number three, like you mentioned, time, which is really not only the, the serial nature of our, our evaluations, but also understanding that what you see at the first 24 hours might not have the same significance of what you see 72 hours and beyond. 
And uh, I think that when you put all that together, it, it's upon our, our teams to really figure out what they have available at their institutions and to try to set kind of a, a standard of this is how we do it over and over again so that we can learn how to do it well, but also try to provide the best available information for our families and for our patients and their families so we can make the right decisions. Absolutely, Sergio. Being consistent with all this uncertainty, the least that we can do is be consistent and then reevaluate our approach in light of new emerging data so that every time we make a decision for a particular kind of therapy or for continuing care or, with, or um, withdrawal of life-sustaining therapies, we're doing it with the best possible knowledge we have at this moment in time. So at the end of the day, we have done our very best to look for the right answer. Excellent. So we would like to, to close the podcast, Niha, with a tradition at Critical Matters, which is asking our guests to share a little bit of their wisdom outside of the clinical topic we discussed. Would that be okay? Absolutely. Would love to. So the first question is uh, regarding books. Are there is there a book or any books that have influenced you significantly or that you have gifted uh, often to other people? How to Win Friends and Influence People by Dale Carnegie. I absolutely love the book. It was written, you know, years and years ago, but so many of those lessons are very applicable to to how we uh, lead ourselves and how we live our lives. Um, mm -hmm. Go ahead. Sorry, go ahead. And Adam Grant's Think Again, because that that whole theme of humility, reevaluating, you come up with one answer, but when there's new data shown to you, just think again. So I thought the book did a marvelous job of, you know, just highlighting that. And um, Sergio, you said it beautifully about how, you know, only fools are going to be dogmatic and so sure about what they're doing. So Adam Grant's Think Again is a wonderful book. And then Brené Brown's Dare to Lead. Um, I, I love all these three books. Excellent. And they're all, I think, highly recommended. And uh, it, it just also, one of the reasons why I always like to ask this question is because there is tremendous value in these three books, which are outside of medicine and being a better clinician. And mm -hmm. uh, I, I would definitely encourage our, our listeners to, to check them out. And uh, especially, a, I think all of them are phenomenal. But when you talk about uh, Adam Grant's book, which is the, the, of all the three, is the newest one, it's interesting, like he talks about thinking like a scientist, right? And, exactly. uh, and what, that, what that made me think he has that we all believe we're scientists, yet we rarely behave like such. <laughs> <laughs> True. So the second question is about beliefs. Is there something that you believe to be true in medicine or in life that most other people don't believe or at least don't act like they believe? I think everything happens for a reason and that everything is interconnected and that the very essence of life is trying to strike the right balance. When I think of homeostasis in the ICU, everything that we try to do, whether it's hyper or hypoglycemia, like they're both bad, but euglycemia is good. Hypo, hyponatremia, both bad, you know, fluid, fluid status, volume, feed, everything. I almost feel like everything in life is about trying to strike the right balance. Perfect. And the last question is, what would you want every intensivist and every listener to know? Could be a quote, a fact, or just a thought. I'll share something that I learned very early on in my med school. And uh, I trained at CGS Medical College in, uh, in Mumbai, India. And we 
our, our very first uh, exposure in medical school was to anatomy. And there was a skeleton holding another, you know, um, skull um, that was painted up as a fresco um, on one of the walls. And right underneath it, uh, you know, they said they said this for anatomy, but I'm just going to paraphrase it. In life, it's better to have learned and lost than never to have learned at all. Another thing that was also on our anatomy floor was you are not here to worship what is known, but to challenge it. I feel both of these things have uh, really informed my approach to, to life as a whole and uh, medicine in particular. And mentorship matters. Mentorship uh, and paying it forward really matters. And I think uh, that that's a perfect place to stop. And uh, I appreciate I'm very grateful for you being so generous with your time and your expertise and paying it forward to, to our listeners. I hope to have you back, Niha, for discussion of other fascinating topics in the world of neurocritical care. And like we were mentioning before we were recording, I look forward to seeing you in person very soon. Absolutely, Sergio. What a delightful podcast. Thank you so much for the opportunity. And uh, one of the big reasons why we do this is to pay it forward. So thank you for the opportunity to pay it forward. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Critical Matters, a sound podcast. Make sure to subscribe to Critical Matters on Apple or Google Podcasts and share with your network. Sound's transforming the way critical care is provided in hospitals across the country. To learn more, visit www.soundphysicians.com.